0: riches. Behind the gates of those gilded estates in Beverly Hills lie motives and motifs found in every neighborhood. Greed and charity, fear and courage, loyalty and betrayal. The most magical things and the most mundane. Mom and dad moved into that famous little town 50 years ago, but could never buy a lot there today. Not even a tiny one. Their 1912 Monterey Colonial is the oldest house on the block. Grainy photos of the Beverly Hills Hotel under construction show our home in the foreground, all by its lonesome in what was then a bean field. It belonged to the hotel's first owner, and the Moscatels purchased it in the 70s from the actress who played Morticia on The Addams Family. The only thing that woman left on the property was the peacock chair she memorably sat in on the television show. Mom never met the lady or watched her program, but kept that chair around because she thought it nicely matched our patio's lattice. I saw it as a brittle piece of wicker furniture gathering dust, not understanding its pretentous significance for years. I always felt weird sitting on it. Rarely did I stray from that house. Until junior high, I was either at Scotty's, teetering along the edges of a koi pond in a nearby park or daydreaming in my bedroom as I bounced a ball off a Lakers poster. Both of my older sisters were sheltered, too. Our parents were the types to cover our eyes in theaters when movies got violent, and our ears if a conversation became explicit. They didn't want us to grow up so fast that we'd forget what it was like when the only monsters in life were the ones under the bed. Eleanor and Ray, my guardians, rarely experienced that kind of security growing up. They were first-generation immigrants living near the bottom of the food chain. In the aftermath of the First World War, Eleanor's mother, Mama Rita, and her seven siblings fled the Isle of Rhodes, a small Mediterranean island with their few possessions. They journeyed west in search of opportunity. My given name, Raphael, was in honor of one of them. He landed in Panama and found work repairing the canal, but perished from malaria shortly afterward. Mama Rita, an exquisite beauty and linguist, disembarked from her boat further north in Havana, where several other Sephardic Jews had settled. Cuba was a paradise that reminded her of the old country. Yet, she soon emigrated to California to wed a naturalized citizen, my grandfather, Dr. Robert. He'd made her acquaintance while visiting the island, struck up a correspondence, and seduced her with a flurry of love letters. Aside from being a romantic and eloquent writer, the doctor was, by most appearances, a pillar of his community. Throughout his life, he fervently advocated for equal justice and human rights. My fondest childhood memories remain of the wiry, bespectacled physician delivering impassioned speeches before every meal. Stridently enunciating as he stood at the head of the table, he'd say, My children, my children, never forget how lucky we are to live here, in America. My mother never did. Eleanor, a feisty, ugly duckling brought up during the Great Depression, didn't complain about her humble beginnings. She wore adversity like a badge of pride. It was a defense mechanism developed at age six after being chased home by bullies hurling anti-semitic slurs and pelting her with rocks. Determined not to play the victim, she pummeled those boys as soon as she learned to throw a right hook. Elementary school made her even tougher. And at eleven, Dr. Robert had to read her the riot act for joyriding in his sedan, though she could barely see above the dashboard. But discipline only seemed to embolden the girl. Frustrated and short-tempered, her father turned abusive, openly worrying his daughter wouldn't amount to anything. He even sent her to live with a cousin in Seattle for a year. After she turned 18, however, Mom blossomed. She bleached her hair blonde, cultivated good fashion sense, and brimmed with self-confidence. The doctor had trouble keeping up with Eleanor's modern ambition, which he chalked up to restlessness but it wasn't the sole reason his influence over her waned. She'd discovered he was performing abortions, not merely as an alternative to the back alley, but because it was lucrative. Had that aspect of his medical practice been widely known, it would have ostracized the family. Silence guaranteed protection, and Eleanor learned how to keep secrets. Intent on not living beneath her father's roof any longer, she enrolled at the local college, meeting her lifelong best friend, Lynn, in the admissions line. But academics bored Mom, and she dropped out to work as an insurance adjuster, saving enough within a year to make payments on a Studebaker convertible. On weekends, she cruised Wilshire Boulevard with Lynn, hoping to get noticed. Somehow they caught the attention of a window dresser from Neiman Marcus, and were offered modeling contracts at $20 a week life was good, until they stumbled into their first marriages. Lynn wed an attorney, and Eleanor got hitched to the man's law partner. They split after my eldest sister, Lori, was born in 1955. The pressure of a newborn weighed on them, and mom's persona proved too domineering for most men. Lynn's marriage was short-lived as well. Divorce left them broke and stigmatized as single mothers. Eleanor had no choice but to move back home. She started working as an extra, hustling all night in scantily clad ensembles on the set of Around the World in Eighty Days, while being yelled at by little men with enormous egos. It wasn't all drudgery, of course. During breaks, she met and made friends with other ingenues. But it was Lynn with whom Mom laughed the hardest and commiserated the most. They were cast in the same films alongside leading men like Marlon Brando, who flirted with Mom. When I was a kid, she'd get nostalgic whenever his movies came on TV. He was the nicest, sweetest man, Raffi. We'd sit down and talk and, oh, he'd want to know everything about me, she'd recall. I remember that sentiment clearly because it made Mom feel so important. My father, Ray, adored her but seldom expressed his feelings. I thought, Marlon Brando, wow, he's the type of guy I want to be. Yet that ideal would elude me until my story started being less about what I wanted and more about what others deserved of me. Most actors weren't as chivalrous as Brando, but for Mom and Lynn, rich and powerful men were hardly a threat. They were modest, and their chastity immunized the gals. The same big wheels who'd cast them as chorus girls would someday find themselves as regular guests at their dinner parties. In the meantime, they were at a nader, sifting through the wreckage of failed marriages. They'd become depressed about their prospects of finding true love, their financial instability, and the daunting responsibilities of raising children alone. The pity party wouldn't last. Channeling the spontaneity that scored them their first entertainment gigs They decided to try their luck in glitzy Manhattan, but their plans fell apart after Eleanor was called away to attend a baby shower for her cousin in the Emerald City. In Seattle, Mom accidentally met the man of her dreams, my dad, Carefree Ray Moscatel. Friends called him that because he cracked jokes like an insult comic and smiled like a Cheshire Cat. It's how he coped, having been reared in an Orthodox Jewish household where disobedience was dealt with harshly. Ray was often banished to a dark basement for hours as a boy. When he could get away, he stayed out playing basketball until sundown, growing strong and tall. There was a six-inch height difference between Dad and me. It should have been the giveaway that I'd been adopted. I resemble neither him nor my mother, but the only person who ever bothered to point out the obvious was Scotty. He'd ask, Hey, Bucky, how come you don't look like Uncle Ray? Because I take after my mom, I'd explain. But you don't look like Auntie Ellie either, he'd reply. Those frank conversations took root in me, though I reflexively dismissed them at the time. And dad's size wasn't the sole dissimilarity. My father had Turkish blood, chestnut eyes, and the jawline of a sultan. If you threw a fez on his noggin, you couldn't distinguish him from a native of Istanbul. Me? I can't leave the house without sunscreen. Ray was also a natural athlete. In 1949, following an outstanding collegiate career, he was invited to try out for the Boston Celtics. Tragically, he missed the opportunity when his father, an earnest man but a heavy smoker and workaholic, was stricken with leukemia. One afternoon in his 40s, he fell against a stack of boxes in the back of his mattress store and was found unconscious. Three days later, he was dead. Tell you one thing about my pop, Dad once shared poignantly. In college, he'd never come to my games. Never. My mother would come, never my dad. But this one time, we were in Corvallis, Oregon, for the quarterfinals of the NCAA. All of a sudden, I turned and saw him sitting there in the stands. He'd never come to a game. Never. I went up there, and I hugged him. I kissed him. And a little after that, he died. But that was a big thrill for me to see him there. Just once. I'll never forget it. Ray took over his father's store at 19. He hated the business, but kept the lights on until his younger brother could take the reins. Later, he purchased a watering hole on Capitol Hill, polishing shot glasses and hauling drunks off their bar stools until the wee hours. Dad started drinking heavily on that job, an addiction that began to consume him about the time he was introduced to Eleanor. The two met on a balmy Sunday at the baby shower. Ray had dropped off his little sister there and decided to stick around. He was sitting alone on the cedar porch, his spearpoint collar shirt unbuttoned, nursing a cold beer. Mom arrived late with her daughter in tow. As she touched the railings on the front steps, her eyes connected with Dad's, instant fireworks. Eleanor was the most desirable woman he'd ever seen, a Barbie doll in the flesh. He tipped his bottle toward her and ogled as she strutted into the house like a gazelle. They sparked up a conversation in the backyard and were married by month's end wasn't the fairy tale ending that Dr. Robert and Mama Rita had in mind for Eleanor. Still, they felt relieved that Lori, their granddaughter, would have a two-parent home. And with little fanfare, the three Moscatels began their lives together in a craftsman bungalow on Lake Washington. While cozy at first, the rain tapping endlessly on the sash windows was neither comforting nor inspiring to Mom. She took a chance and opened a boutique on the main drag in Seward Park, hoping to bring some of the styles she loved about L.A. to Seattle. But soon after her grand opening, she faced headwinds when the stuffy rabbi from Dad's synagogue stopped in. You are wife of Raymond? The man inquired with a heavy accent as he picked through the unconventional garb on the racks. That's me, Eleanor replied with a friendly grin behind the cash register. Thanks for coming in, rabbi. She knew he'd heard of her because he privately implored Dad to wait a few months before getting married to ensure she wasn't pregnant. He'd also refused to perform their ceremony. Nevertheless, Mom played nice. What do you think of the clothes? she asked as he judged each item. Sephardim do not wear these things, he tersely remarked. A few minutes later, he departed, leaving Mom demoralized. Before she knew it, Foot traffic and sales dropped as women from the tight-knit community heeded the religious leaders' warning to avoid unorthodox fashions. Eleanor was miffed and grew bored. She prayed for more excitement in her life. Then, one day, God answered her prayers. It was the Holy Sabbath. Dad's tavern was closed, and he'd walked the mile to synagogue just as he had since he was a child. Men were seated on one side of the congregation, and women on the other in those days. Mom purposely showed up ten minutes late for services that Saturday, wearing one of the low-cut dresses the rabbi disapproved of. "'What are you doing, Eleanor?' Dad murmured as she sat beside him. "'What's it look like, Ray?' Mom replied, with everyone's eyes fixed on them." She'd crossed the line, and her trespass triggered a roar of dissent. The women covered their mouths, tittering, as the men grumbled and pointed their fingers, condemning her. Dad began to squirm, adjusting his collar, beads of sweat forming beneath his receding hairline. The rabbi picked up his prayer book and waved it over his head as he stomped down the aisle, yelling at Eleanor and Ladino, the Sephardic language. The congregation swelled behind him, surrounding Mom like a pitchforked mob, demanding that she respect tradition and sit with the women. Eleanor refused to bend the knee, sneering at the rabbi as she left. Dad remained in his seat, unsure of what to do. Get off your ass, Raymond! Mom shouted from the exit. He stood up and followed her out of the synagogue, bombarded on both sides of the aisle by insulted congregants. A life of indentured servitude had begun. Inevitably, The Moscatel shuttered the apparel shop and moved to Los Angeles, where Dad found a job stocking shelves in a grocery. But it wouldn't be enough to make ends meet, especially since they'd just had a second child, my brother, Albert, born in 1958. Mom began acting again and booked a feature called G.I. Blues. She'd heard stories about Elvis Presley, the star. He was not a lovely person. He made fun of people she would say. There was also his reputation with women. Presley moved on almost every pretty girl who passed his trailer, and they usually kissed him back. But while Eleanor wasn't a nun, she was no groupie. When Elvis pulled her into his dressing room and tried to plant one on her, she turned her face in disgust. Pig! She cried out, resisting him. Come on, baby, he cooed, hoping to calm her. "'No! What is wrong with you?' Mom retorted, freeing herself. "'I'm a married woman!' "'It's only a little kiss,' he replied, taken aback by her rejection. Had that harassment occurred today, Eleanor may have received a settlement check. But it was 1960, so instead, she was fired that afternoon by the King of Rock and Roll. Serendipitously, She was hired weeks later with Lynn on Bonanza, television's most popular series, featuring a young Michael Landon as little Joe Cartwright. Mom's best friend bewitched the rising star. He pursued and romanced her, and they were married in 1963, when my brother Albert turned five. Eight years later, the Landons would light a candle at his bar mitzvah. Michael was the embodiment of a mensch. On set, the actor was a typical perfectionist. But in the real world, he never refused an autograph, badgered a waiter, or used status to gain an advantage. Humility was at the core of his character from early in his boyhood. A bedwetter into his teens, his mother would shame him by pinning his soiled sheets outside his window. He'd race home after school to stash them before the neighborhood kids could see. And despite good looks and artistry, nothing came easy to the man. Like many entertainers back then, he was forced to change his name from Eugene Orowitz to the more regal-sounding Michael Landon to get work. He later carved out his niche in Hollywood, portraying upstanding Christian fathers and guardian angels. And like Eleanor, he didn't allow the pain of his past to prescribe his future. Mom's work was steady on the Western. But even if you were best friends with the star, extra work didn't make you millions. The Landons weren't rich either. When they moved into their first house in Encino, they couldn't afford a dining room set. My parents would visit them and sit on egg crates as they served dinner. Eventually, Michael's career did start earning him a fortune. Mom and Dad were happy for him and Lynn, but understandably envious because they were still stuck in a Spanish duplex owned by Dr. Robert. The cost of living kept rising and Mom knew something would have to give if they were to provide a better life for Lori and Albert. But with her hands full raising kids and working long hours, it didn't leave much time for entrepreneurship. Luckily, Mama Rita had something of her own brewing. One afternoon, while Dad was driving her to an appointment, a billboard caught her eye from the passenger window, an ad for the Cleveland Chiropractic College. Chiropractor, she exclaimed. Her bright red lipstick stretching ear to ear. Thought I was taking you to the dentist, Dad said, weaving his tan Buick in and out of traffic, trying to change the subject. Mama Rita shook her head, unleashing a string of expletives in her native language of Ladino. Ay, rey, eres un hatrosu, todo el tiempo murmuriando, Carne con dos ojos. She'd called him meat with two eyes. But then, Calming herself, gave the order in broken English. "'You going to chiropractor school, Ray?' "'I'm forty years old,' he scoffed. "'I ain't going back to school.' "'Oh, you going, Ray?' she commanded like a drill sergeant. "'You going or else?' "'Or else what?' "'Or else I'm making Eleanor divorce you, honey,' she threatened with a devilish grin. "'I ain't going!' "'Shh, no more talk,' she instructed, putting a finger to her lips. An hour later, after the dentist appointment, they pulled up in front of their duplex, and Dad opened the door for his mother-in-law. Mom was spread out on the couch, tired and glum. "'Eleanor, wonderful news!' Mama Rita trumpeted as she waltzed in, setting down her purse and removing her white gloves. Mom sat up, interested." What is it, Mama? Ray has decided to go to chiropractor school to be a doctor, she declared as she pointed at Dad. Isn't it right, Ray? Dad grunted. The matter was settled, and Mom was ecstatic. Ray kept working a day shift at the grocery while attending night school. My father had enrolled two decades after getting his degree from Seattle University. Not an easy transition for a one time star athlete, but those glory days were gone. He was now the oldest student in the class, and his teachers could care less whether he'd been All State. Upon graduation, Mom realized they'd need to hang a shingle if they were ever to make something of themselves. With the few bucks they'd saved from her acting work and a small loan from Dr. Robert, they started Banner Medical Clinic. Ray proved he had strong hands and healed his patients, yet success didn't come overnight. When they opened their first office in Inglewood, the one location they could afford, the carpenter they hired to build out the space threw cold water on their dream. Lady, you're going to have a hard time making it. This city is swamped with chiropractors, he noted. You build the exam room and I'll build the business, Eleanor shot back. But the naysayer was on to something. There was no shortage of back doctors in Los Angeles. Still, there was bound to be demand with thousands of car accidents on the highways. Why were some doing better than others? Mom wondered. It didn't take her long to figure it out. Business wasn't just about providing a product or service. It was about relationships. Clients weren't walking into chiropractor offices right off the street. They were being referred after accidents. The Moscatels would need to hook up with a top-notch personal injury attorney. Only that way could they make a sizable dent in the business. But there was such a person to be found. Mom checked her local paper, the Los Angeles Times. A young lawyer from Boyle Heights was often featured in the blotter, usually as an aggressive plaintiff's attorney for injured motorists and occasionally representing a jilted spouse. Eleanor decided to seek him out. Without reservation, she strode down to his office building the following afternoon, took the elevator to the penthouse, and informed the receptionist that she had a meeting with the barrister. "'I don't see anything on his calendar, Miss... "'Mason,' my mother responded, smoothing out her pink suit. She'd used the alias for the same reason Michael had—for work.' having gone by a few different stage names herself, she guessed using one in business might be helpful. What are the chances a man like Donald Sterling would want to do business with a Moscatel, she thought, waiting in the reception. Moscatel seemed so ethnic in comparison to Sterling. She wasn't embarrassed by the surname, but wouldn't let it interfere with her plans. Dropping it was an acceptable sacrifice, she assured herself. She wasn't married to it, after all. Just Ray. Little did Mom know Donald T. Sterling's moniker wasn't authentic, either. The T stood for Tekowitz. She grew impatient as the phones rang off the hook, and the receptionist struggled to juggle the calls. I'm sorry, Miss Mason. I can't find your appointment. Would you like to wait? No, that's okay, Mom replied, advancing toward Sterling's office. The receptionist popped up on her toes and tried to stop Mom's beeline, but couldn't block her charge. Mom flung open his door, and Don lowered his reading glasses. Hello, he said, pleasantly surprised. Hello, Mom replied, uncertain what to say next. I'm sorry, Mr. Sterling. I told Miss Mason she needed an appointment, said the receptionist, clinging to the doorframe. Eleanor was statuesque in heels and held her ground like a matador. It's fine. I've got a few minutes, Don said, inviting her to sit. As the secretary retreated, Mom parked it in front of his desk. How can I help you, Miss Mason? Well, I have a new chiropractic office. Okay, said Don, tilting back in his chair and cupping his hands behind his head. Um... What do you think about sending me some business? Don laughed, admiring her hutzpah. He cleared his schedule and gave her an hour. Over the next few years, they would develop a symbiotic relationship. Banner Medical expanded and opened satellite locations in Pasadena and South Central. Don would send her new clients, and Mom identified residential properties for Sterling, who was pivoting to real estate. Before the end of the century, He'd become the wealthiest private landlord in the city, from the Wilshire Corridor to Koreatown. Eventually, Mom and Dad saved enough bread for their own place. They'd had three kids by then, the youngest an almond-eyed baby with frizzy hair, my sister Marley, born in 1970. After her first birthday, they moved from the duplex to Beverly Hills. Mom took Don's sage advice to buy the worst home in the best neighborhood, which happened to be across the street from his. The down payment was every dollar my parents could scrounge. Happy, but house poor, Eleanor signed up for free drawing classes at the Adult Education Center to fill the space. Her paintings, copies of 19th century Impressionism, still hang on the walls. Lynn and Michael followed the Moscatels to Beverly Hills from Encino and purchased a sprawling estate up the road. As our two families grew close, Michael began producing a show about an American frontier family that would forever change my life. He called it Little House on the Prairie. Though he was the biggest star on television, talk of the business wasn't the predominant conversation among Michael's closest friends. He rarely mentioned work when in mom and dad's company. They weren't industry people, so they got to know a markedly different side of the man. One night, he'd been walking the red carpet blinded by Kodak flashes, and the next morning he'd be helping Dad hook up a washer. Now and then, he'd even mow our front lawn, sometimes shirtless. Folks would drive by and do double takes. They celebrated every occasion together. And for Mom's 40th birthday, Michael gave her a special present. He arranged for her to be a contestant on the game show Hollywood Squares. Michael would be the secret square that night and Mom was to pretend as if she didn't know him from Adam. Before the cameras rolled, they conspired. It was half-hearted, more of a prank between old friends than anything else. Eleanor, now listen to me carefully, he explained. When the host gives me a question, I'm going to do this with my ear, he said, scratching his lobe. I'll do that if I know the answer, and you agree, okay? "Uh Uh-huh, Mom nodded. "'Sure you got this, Eleanor?' he asked, knowing how absent-minded she could be. "'Michael, please. You can trust me,' she winked. "'Okay. Now act like we've never met,' he said, walking away toward an attractive makeup artist. Mom performed well during the first half of the matchup and had momentum going into the final round when she picked Michael, the secret square, for the win. The host swiveled in his chair and read from an index card. Okay, Michael Landon, for the win. Which of these actors plays the Argentine mercenary Che Guevara in the new film Bloody Che Contra? Is it Francisco Rabal, Steve McQueen, or Robert Redford? Michael restated the question so Mom could see him scratching at his ear and answered confidently. Rabal, Francisco Rabal. Are you sure? asked the host hundred percent, Michael confirmed, scratching his ear again conspicuously. It wasn't a tough one. Everyone watching knew that neither Robert Redford nor Steve McQueen, two blondes with light complexions, could have possibly played Che Guevara. The host turned to mom. Eleanor, for the win, agree or disagree. But in all the excitement, she'd become distracted and forgotten the sign. After a nail-biting pause, she leaned into the mic, answering meekly, I'll disagree. Oh no, not correct, Eleanor, not correct. It was Rabal, Francisco Rabal, the host jeered as the camera panned in on Michael slapping his forehead. Ray couldn't believe the blunder and never let her live it down. He and Michael poked fun at Eleanor unremittingly, especially when drinking. And while they were typically happy drunks, their compulsions would one day get the best of them. A year after Mom lost the game show, the Landons invited the Moscatels to a Vegas banquet. Ray excused himself from Michael's table to take a leak. At the urinal, he glanced over, and standing beside him was his idol. The one man who could leave him speechless. The chairman of the board, Frank Sinatra. Dad gaped at him with his mouth open like a junkyard dog. Frank recoiled, feigning disgust. "'What are you looking at, pal?' he asked Ray in a scary, low voice. Dad retrained his sights on the urinal, red-faced. It was 1972. Paramount's The Godfather had just been released, featuring a scene with a character purportedly based on Sinatra and strongly implying he was mafioso. Ray didn't want to take any chances. Hey, I- I'm sorry about that. I… <laughs> Kidding, pal. Kidding, Frank laughed, zipping his pants. You out there with Mikey? Dad nodded. Good. Tell him I'll swing by after the show. Nice to meet you, he told his biggest fan. Dad still had his mouth wide open as Frank was handed a towel by the bemused restroom attendant and left. When he returned to the table, Sinatra was on stage, and a Nevada senator was sitting with Michael. Ray, who knew all about sports but nothing about politics, spent the night getting hammered with the legislator. He woke up the next morning hungover and sprawled on a satin couch in Michael's suite. Walking through the casino later that afternoon, the two buddies ran into the politician. "'Fine talking to you fellas last night,' he said, lighting a cigar. You have some interesting ideas about this country, Ray. Thank you, Dad responded. Keep them to yourself, the senator added, pointing at him accusatorily. As his handlers whisked him away, Michael raised his eyebrows. What on earth did you say to that man, Raymond? Who gives a shit, my father shrugged. Let's go play some cards. It wouldn't be the Moscatel's last foray into politics. A couple of years later, in 1974, Eleanor campaigned for Jerry Moonbeam Brown in the California gubernatorial race. She'd worked hard to organize fundraisers for him and line up donors, but during one event he'd made the mistake of parking his light blue beat-up Plymouth in her driveway. Normally, that wouldn't have been a problem, but it had just been paved, and Jerry had been reminded politely and repeatedly to leave it on the street. Lori came home earlier than usual that afternoon, and when she tried to pull her Firebird in, couldn't get around Jerry's wheels. So she hopped out and barged into the entry, but was restrained by a couple of his lackeys. Hey, where do you think you're going, young lady? One asked, accosting her. Who are you two goons? Lori hissed, tilting her aviators. The Secretary of State is inside, invitation only. My sister cocked her head and snickered, "'Invitation?' "'Yeah,' said the other, adjusting his stance. "'I don't need an invitation to my own house, assholes,' she cursed, rushing them aside. She found Mom in the living room stirring an olive martini, cornered by the candidate. "'Lori! What are you doing home, darling?' said Eleanor. "'We have a little problem, Mother,' her daughter replied. Mom pinched her arm, introducing her to their guest of honor." He apologized for the confusion at the door and promised to move his Plymouth. Yet, hours later, as my parents bid him farewell on their front porch, he had still not moved that damn car. Can't thank you enough, Eleanor, the candidate said, shaking Mom's hand. Really, it was our pleasure, Mom replied gleefully, waving as he walked to his vehicle. Albert peered down at them from behind sheer curtains in the window above. He'd spent the day holed up in his bedroom spinning Supertramp LPs. Lori walked in and leaned up against her little brother. That Plymouth looks kind of old, observed Albert. Jerry got behind the wheel and put on his belt, waving one last time at Mom. Something's not right about that guy, Eleanor, Dad mumbled, chewing his toothpick. As soon as Jerry drove off, Mom's mood soured. Moonbeam had left a big puddle in her driveway. She unstrapped her heels, handed them to Ray, and approached it like a homicide detective. Bending down, she ran a finger through to check if it was maybe from the radiator, but it was oil. And in that instant, without a second thought, she decided that son of a bitch would never set foot in her house again. You simply do not park in Eleanor Moscatel's driveway, leave an oil stain, and expect to be invited back, even if you're the next governor of California. The Moscatel family, neither politicians, nor old money, nor celebrities, had ensconced themselves in Beverly Hills. They'd been auditioned and cast in this rags-to-riches fable, far from the poverty and struggles they'd once known. But that story was destined to take a sharp and dreadful turn while attending a screening of Little House on the Prairie in 1975, they received a call from the chief resident in the emergency room. A monster lay waiting at their gates. You just finished listening to the second episode of The Boy from Beverly Hills. If you can't wait for the next episode of this podcast, Go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and buy a copy of the book, The Bastard of Beverly Hills, available now.